In Leviticus chapter 23, God has published His calendar. And He has established some special days. You see, when God created the universe, He established a continuum of space and mass and time. And He is the Lord over all three. He has jurisdiction over all space. He is sovereign over all matter. And He is the author of all time. Every second that ticks off your clock belongs to God. And we are as responsible to God for how we use time as how we occupy space and how we employ and utilize matter. In ancient Israel, God set up signposts to remind His people of His lordship over space and matter and time. His lordship over space was seen in His ownership. All the land belonged to God. His sovereignty over matter was seen in the offerings, a portion of the harvest, a first of the flock. A portion of their material abundance was given as an offering to God. And His lordship over time was seen in the observance of certain holy days. Guys, we are all living on borrowed time. Every second of your life belongs to God, and He calls us all to give back to Him a portion of the time that He has given to us. Thus the Hebrews were called by God to set aside various feast days where they might celebrate God's blessing and God's goodness, special days of worship and rest. And the feasts that God appointed for Israel were all cyclical. They all occurred at different intervals. The Sabbath, for example, was a once-a-week celebration. The Feast of the New Moon occurred monthly. The Jewish calendar was a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. It was based on 30-day cycles. And every so often, because of they were out of sync with the solar year, they had to add a month of 30 days to balance things out. There were actually seven annual feasts. Four were in the spring, and three were in the fall of the year. The spring feasts were these, unleavened bread, Passover, the Feast of first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. The fall feasts were three. They included the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. These seven annual feasts are what we're going to be talking about tonight. There were also two wintertime feasts I might make mention of. Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights, comes in December according to our calendar, and Purim, which according to our calendar is usually between February and March. Purim springs from the days of Queen Esther, in the story you read about in the book of Esther. And Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights, comes from the time between the Old and New Testaments when God miraculously cleansed the temple and delivered the temple from the Syrians and then cleansed it and, and preserved the light so that of the dedication and so forth. And there's a wonderful story regarding that. Both feasts were added later by the Jews. And though they certainly give God thanks and praise, they were not part of God's original calendar. That included the seven feasts that we'll study. In addition to these feasts, though, there was also a Sabbath year. One year in seven. We'll talk about that next week. And then every 50th year also had a very special significance. It was the year of Jubilee. Well, in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, God prefaces all these feasts by saying, 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Now, the Hebrew word translated feast means appointment. These were appointments that God made with his people. God blocked out his calendar for them, and he expects his people to block out their calendar for him. You don't snub God when you got an appointment with him. Guys, we should all put on our calendar certain times where we can spend that time with God. We all should keep a weekly Sabbath. We all should have meaningful holiday celebrations, timely getaways, men's retreats, do your heart good, women's retreats, annual Bible conferences, and so forth. God says to Moses, these are my feasts. And when God makes an appointment with you, make sure that you keep it. The feasts that we celebrate today are different than those that the Jews celebrated, but our feasts are no less important to our spiritual life as their feasts were to them. There's an old saying that I heard many years ago that stuck with me, and it saved me from many about with burnout. You want to write it down. It goes like this. The bow that is always bent ceases to shoot straight. Hey, if you never relax the string... If you keep that bow in constant stress and tension, it will eventually warp and it will start to lose its aim. And the same is true with the human psyche. Our bodies and minds and spirits need frequent intervals of rest and rejuvenation in order to operate at optimal levels. You know, it's now been proven medically that a night's sleep alone does not meet man's need for rest. During the day, our body breathes in 30 ounces of oxygen, but it exhales 31 ounces, and therefore we end up one ounce short every day. Now at night, we breathe back more oxygen than we use, but not enough to make up for what we lost during the day. We recover five-sixths of an ounce, which means at the end of each day, we still end up one-sixth of an ounce short. A night's rest does not replenish the day's work. And by the time six days elapse, we're six-sixths or a full ounce short. If we work the next day, the seventh day, we never recover. But if we take that seventh day off, we then save an ounce of oxygen that we need to balance out our system and catch ourselves up. God had it all worked out in advance. This is why Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. You need that rest. You need that daily interval of rest and rejuvenation. And not only the Sabbath, but all the Levitical feasts were wonderful gifts from God. They were intended by God for our benefit. As I mentioned, we as Gentile believers no longer celebrate the same feast days as the Old Testament Hebrews. Nevertheless, we can learn from the principles. We too need to set aside weekly and annual intervals to rest and to refresh and to refocus spiritually. The first appointment that God mentions is the weekly Sabbath. 
Respect for the Sabbath was the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Verse 3 tells us, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Notice the flow of this verse. Six days shall work be done, but on the Sabbath you shall do no work. You see, the Sabbath is a contrast to the days that precede it. The Hebrew word Sabbath means intermission. And that's what the Sabbath is. It's a break in the daily routine. It's a rest stop in the rat race. It is a time out in the big game. One author writes, On the Sabbath, every day gives way to holiday, and the Jewish world rests. Six days are given to work, but the seventh is set aside to remember why we work the other six days. It's the day that reminds us of the reason we do what we do the rest of the week. It's the day to regroup and refocus and rejuvenate and restore. The Sabbath day is a day to emphasize two activities. On the Sabbath, we need to pray and play. The Sabbath is a day to enjoy God's blessings, and as you do, make sure you say thanks to Him for them. You know, today we use the term holidays. It's the combination of two English words, holy and days. And holidays were originally holy days. They were days marked out as holy and set apart for the worship of God and for the celebration of His wonderful works. The problem today with our Sabbaths is how we spend them. Rather than holy days, we go to Disney World or Six Flags. And when we come home, we're more exhausted than when we left. We have to take a vacation to recover from our vacation. Trust me, a trip to Six Flags is not what I call a holy convocation. Sometimes we take our Sabbaths and we do work of another sort rather than rest. We labor in the yard or we toil around under the hood of the car. We remodel the bathroom. In other words, we just find other ways to stress out. Verse 3 tells us that the Sabbath is set aside for solemn or for serious rest. We need one day each week where we're all about serious rest. Not necessarily a day of inactivity, but we need to do something on that day that rejuvenates, that restores rather than drains. Hey, if you were to make an appointment to see your pastor for counseling, and while you were explaining your problem to me, I was working on a model airplane, you'd be kind of ticked off, wouldn't you? I mean, at least the guy can give me his attention. I've made an appointment with him, no less. Well, I think this is how God feels when he makes appointments with us only to have us ignore him or neglect him or to carry on doing other things. We need to set aside times to strengthen our grip on God. Well, verse 4 tells us, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Notice here, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Take note, the Hebrew day begins at twilight. 
at sundown. It's interesting. God wanted His day to begin with rest, not end with rest. I think that's important. God's plan for us is to gain strength from Him and then turn around and use that strength to work. We, in turn, go off and start our day with work, and then when we get home, we finally think about God. God's plan is for us to gain strength from Him, then begin the work that He has for us. According to verse 5, these spring feasts begin with the Lord's Passover. You remember, on the eve of Israel's exit from Egypt, God gave to Moses directions, instructions for how to celebrate Passover. Exodus 12 tells of the festivities and how they revolved around a meal. Hebrew families would all sit down together and they ate bitter herbs to remind them of the 400 years of Egyptian bondage. Roasted lamb recalled the lamb's blood that was spread on the doorposts and the thresholds of the house. The blood that caused the death plague to pass over the house, thus the name Passover. The unleavened bread spoke of the faith of the Hebrews how they trusted in God's promise. Their exodus the next morning provided no time for the bread to rise. That's why they ate unleavened bread. It was a symbol of their faith. Verse 4 tells us that the Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, or Nisan. It's the first month of a new year, and it symbolizes a new start for Israel. On our calendar, Passover occurs late March, early April. Today, Passover, or as the Jews call it, Pesach, is the most observed of all the feasts. A 1990 survey said that 80% of Jews worldwide attend a Passover Seder. It's very popular. And remember, Jesus was crucified on what day? On what feast? On Passover, or Nisan the 14th. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 tells us, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Paul called Jesus our Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And when his blood is spread on the doorposts and the thresholds of your heart, the judgment of God passes over you. You're delivered from your sin. You remember on the night of the Passover, just before he was crucified, Jesus gave new meaning to the age-old celebration. He took that unleavened bread and the wine, and he called it my body and my blood. Jesus took a 1,500-year-old tradition at the time, and he gave it a revolutionary new meaning. He said that this is a new covenant that I'm making with you. From now on, these elements will represent me and my work for you. Hey, through Christ our Passover, we too can have a brand new start in life. Well, verse 6 mentions the next spring feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. You remember, leaven is a type of sin. And so following their deliverance from Egypt, they were to spend seven days ridding themselves and their houses of that which represented sin. Hey, we need to understand this. When Jesus delivers us, He doesn't expect us to clean up first. Jesus takes us just as we are and right where we're at. Isn't that beautiful? Leaven in your life doesn't stop you from coming to Jesus. It doesn't stop you from being forgiven and being set free and Him making you His child. 
You don't have to clean up your life before you come to Jesus. But once you belong to Him, and once you've tasted of His love and of His grace, as a thank you to God, you'll want to get rid of the leaven in your life. The things that cause pride and puff you up. The sins that are displeasing to God. You'll want to get rid of those things. You'll want to live a life that pleases God. It's been said a believer isn't sinless. But he does sin less and less and less. Well, on the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Notice the first and the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a special Sabbath. And for those of us who hold to the theory that Jesus was crucified on Thursday, not Friday, this helps to explain why the disciples were in such a hurry to bury the body. The next day was a Sabbath. But it was not a Saturday. It was a special Sabbath. It was the first day of the unleavened feast of the unleavened bread. You see, there were two Sabbaths that week. And John 19 verse 31 makes this same implication. And of course, the reason I hold to a Thursday crucifixion is that it allows us to take Jesus' words in Matthew 12 very literally. You remember what he said? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And when you think about it, the only way Jesus could have been buried for 72 hours is that if the Passover had occurred on a Thursday. But you can disagree with me, that's fine. A lot of people do. Verse 9 discusses the third spring feast, which was the Feast of first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now we're still in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the day after the Sabbath, which followed the Passover. Now, you've got the Passover. Then you've got the special Sabbath that begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was Friday. Then you've got the regular Sabbath, which was Saturday. And then you've got this day, the first day of the Feast of First Fruits. On that day, the priest brought the initial yield of the barley harvest, and he offered it to God. And this was a way of saying thanks to God for providing their needs. And it's exactly what we do when we tithe our income, when we give back to God the first fruits rather than the leftovers, the very best of the harvest because of all that he's given to us. And notice the priest made his offering in a very interesting way. He waved a bundle of barley up and down, and then he waved it from side to side. A vertical motion and then a horizontal motion. In essence, when the priest offered this sacrifice, he was drawing a cross. First vertical, then horizontal. The wave offering was a picture of Jesus. But there's an even clearer picture of Jesus on the Feast of First Fruits. For Jesus was resurrected on the day after that Saturday, which was Sunday. 
Resurrection Sunday was also the Jewish feast of first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the initial yield of God's future harvest. We are going to be harvested one day. We're going to be resurrected just as Jesus was. But he was the first fruits. He was the first to overcome death and inherit an incorruptible body. And guess what? His resurrection took place on the Jewish feast of first fruits. Verse 12. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah, or about a fifth of a bushel, of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen, which is about a quart and a half. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. The feast of what? First fruits. The last of the spring feasts was the Feast of Weeks. The Hebrew name for it was Shavat, which means weeks. And it was a joyous time. At Shavat, people would decorate their homes with fresh flowers. For some reason, cheesecakes became associated with the Feast of Weeks. Why? I have no idea. But if I were a Jew, I'd be glad. As I mentioned earlier, the Hebrew word that is typically translated feast means appointment. But there is another Hebrew word, hagim, which can also be rendered feast. And hagim means to be giddy or to dance or to celebrate, to make merry. And it was used of three of these feasts we're studying. Unleavened bread, the feast of weeks that we're talking about now, and then the feast that's yet to come, tabernacles. It's interesting. These were the same three feasts that God ordered to be celebrated in Jerusalem. These were to be happy times. Verse 15, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, or first fruits, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. So 49 days after the Feast of First Fruits, and then the day after that, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. This was the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, 50 days to the feast. The Greek word translated 50 is the word Pentecost, which is the name of this feast that's given to it in the New Testament. On our calendar today, the Feast of Pentecost occurs in late May, early June. He says, You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. Now, Pentecost, or weeks, celebrated the end of the spring harvest. During the Feast of Weeks, the priest would bring two loaves of grain to the Lord. And unlike at Passover, those two loaves were baked with leaven. They weren't unleavened. They were baked with leaven. 
It's fascinating that in the same year that Jesus fulfilled the Passover by becoming our Passover lamb, our sacrifice, in the same year that he fulfilled the feast of first fruits by rising from the dead to begin this end time harvest that we're a part of, likewise in that same year, Jesus fulfilled the symbolism associated with the feast of Pentecost. For it was during Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers who were meeting in the upper room there in Jerusalem. And a harvest of souls began. The first fruits of the harvest were brought in. 3,000 that first day. You remember flames of fire appeared on the heads of the disciples in the upper room. And it's interesting. Two loaves were presented to God that day. Jews and Gentiles. Jews were saved and Gentiles were saved. They were leavened loaves. God accepted them even though they were still stained by sin. In other words, God accepts you right where you are. You don't have to clean up before you come to Him. He cleans you up once He gets you. It's also interesting that Jewish tradition states that the law was given to Moses 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Pentecost became the anniversary of the giving of the law to Moses. And I think it's no coincidence that God, the lawgiver, began to write his law on the hearts of men by the Holy Spirit also on the day of Pentecost, on the anniversary of the giving of the law. On that anniversary, the anniversary of the old covenant, a new covenant was put into effect by the Holy Spirit. And on that day, you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap. Nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger." For I am the Lord your God. And notice the special emphasis for the poor associated with the Feast of Pentecost. Perhaps this was what directed the actions of the early church. You remember in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost. And in the spirit of Pentecost, we're told that they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you get concerned about the needs of others. So, these were the four spring feasts. Passover, the unleavened bread, the feast of first fruits, and Pentecost. And they were all fulfilled by our Lord Jesus in His first coming to this earth. Three fall feasts occurred next. And all three occurred in the very same month, in the seventh month of the year, the month of Tishri, the equivalent of our September, October. 
The first fall feast was the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 23 tells us, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Today the Jews call the Feast of Trumpets Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. Before their exodus from Egypt, the Jewish New Year began in the month of Tishri, or the seventh month. And for civil purposes, they maintained that distinction. Nisan was the first month for religious purposes, whereas Tishri was the first month of the year for secular purposes. On the Feast of Trumpets, the priest would blow his shofar, or his ram's horn. And the blast would call the workers of the harvest out of the fields up to the tabernacle for a holy convocation or gathering. The Feast of Trumpets marked the end of the fall harvest. Jewish tradition says that the Feast of Trumpets was the birthday of the world. They saw it as not only the Jewish New Year, but it marked the beginning of creation. The Jews observed it by taking a moral inventory during this part of the year. They reviewed their past year and their failures and the ways they had fallen short. And rather than celebrate their new year like we do with party hats and whistles and blowers and all the rest, they repented of their sins. They resolved in their hearts to make a fresh start. It's interesting. The rabbis teach that Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac on Rosh Hashanah. And since God provided a ram instead of his son, God provided a sacrifice, just as one day he would provide Jesus for us. The priest always blows a ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah. In case you've ever wondered what it sounds like, it actually made three sounds. There was a long, plain note. At other times, there were three broken notes. And then at other times, it was blown with nine short blasts. The shofar is the oldest wind instrument. After the Feast of Trumpets came the Day of Atonement, or as it's called by the Jews, Yom Kippur. In Hebrew, Yom means day. Kippur means covering or atonement. And this was the day that the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled the Lamb's blood on the mercy seat. On this day, the sin of the nation was covered for another year. And Yom Kippur was the holiest day of the year on the Hebrew calendar. Verse 26 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. Notice that phrase, afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. The rabbis understood that phrase, afflict your souls, as a command to fast from food on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur was a solemn day spent in confession and in repentance. Verse 28, And you shall do no work on that day, for it is the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Notice, the people did no work because this was the day when the high priest worked for them. This was the high priest's big day. This was his day to fulfill his major role 
On this day, the sacrifices and the rituals that we discussed back in Leviticus 16 were carried out. This was the one day of the year when the high priest would enter the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the place where the glory of God hovered above the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. He would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the lid of the Ark, on this mercy seat. Then he would exit the tabernacle and he would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess over that goat the sins of the nation. Then that goat was led off into the wilderness, never to return. And it was all a vivid reminder and a demonstration to the nation Israel that God had not only forgiven them, but he had also forgotten their sin. I hope you realize that what God forgives, he forgets. Just let that sit in for a minute. That what God forgives, He forgets. He's not holding anything over you. He's not waiting for you to blow it so He can remind you of what you did last week. If it's under the blood of Jesus, it's not only been forgiven, it's been forgotten. I love Jeremiah 31 verse 34. The Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Verse 29, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Hey, this wasn't a day for you to work. This was a day for the high priest to work for you. Your salvation was not the result of your work. That's why it was so important that you do no work. The salvation was brought about by the work of another. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. This was the day when you ceased from your work and you put your trust in the work of another. Hey, this is how God works salvation today. When you come to Jesus, you stop trying to earn God's favor through your good works, through your kind deeds. You rely on the completed work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus does the work for us. We trust in His work rather than continue in our own. This is why it was so important to do no work on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. And whenever I think of the Jewish observance of Yom Kippur, I always flash back, and this is sort of trivial, but to October the 6th, 1965. Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher, Sandy Koufax, a Jewish man, my favorite player growing up. I mean, he's the only other guy I knew named Sandy. He was my hero. He refused to pitch on the first day of the World Series because it was Yom Kippur. It was amazing. Instantly, Koufax was beloved by Jewish mamas all over the world. They named their boys Sandy, you know, from that point on. And at that time, someone summed up Jewish history this way. 3,000 years of beautiful tradition from Moses to Sandy Koufax. That's probably taking it a bit too far. Verse 32 says, It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. God's serious about resting, isn't He? It's a solemn, serious rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening 
from evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. The Jewish rabbis said that the Day of Atonement was actually over when you saw the first three stars in the night sky the following day at twilight. It's sad what's happened today to the Jewish celebration of the Day of Atonement. Rather than sacrifice, it really has nothing to do with sacrifice. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that he calls Jesus our propitiation, or literally, the word means our mercy seat. Jesus has become our mercy seat. It's on Jesus that the blood has been sprinkled. It's where grace is met with truth. It's where we're forgiven. It's where we're set free. Jesus is also our scapegoat. He's the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Confess your sins Thrust them upon Jesus and Jesus will pay their penalty and wipe them out for you. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and God will not only forgive your sin, but He'll forget your sin once and for all. God wanted the Jews to use this day to cultivate a heart of repentance. A day for them to humble themselves and admit their need for a sacrifice and to put their trust in their high priest, Jesus Christ. But you know, over the years, the Jews have done just the opposite. They've confused the meaning of Yom Kippur. Today, it's treated, it's really been turned topsy-turvy, and it's treated the opposite of the way God intended. It's become a substitute for sacrifice today, not a reminder. Jews today believe that their fasting and their good works and the afflicting of their soul in and of itself is payment for their sin. And they use the day to remind God of how good they've been. And they afflict their souls thinking that their good works and their sacrifices are going to earn the favor that they desire and earn God's forgiveness. How tragic. Jews today have forgotten Leviticus 17 verse 11. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. There can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And Jesus has shed the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. Well, the final fall feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Hey, if you were a Jewish businessman, you might as well just get it in your head that you're not going to get a lot of work done in the month of Tishri. I mean, all three of these feasts come in the same month. It was packed with holidays. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. A special ceremony took place on the eighth day. In fact, it was the same ritual that in John chapter 7 Jesus hijacked And he used to extend an important invitation. And we're going to talk about it in just a minute. It was the day that God shouted. Verse 37 is a summary of all these feasts, a summary statement. It says, These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. 
Now he goes back to the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 39. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Now this is why they called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents Sukkoth, which means booths or tents. And Sukkoth was the fun feast. For a whole week, Hebrew families lived outdoors in tents. I bet your kids would love that. They gathered sticks and leaves and twigs, and they thatched together a hut. Even today, observant Jews will spend the feast in booths that they set up in their backyard. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's provision for Israel during their wilderness wanderings. You remember, for 40 years they lived in makeshift booths rather than permanent homes. And God met their need every day. Manna in the morning, quail at night. You remember, for 40 years their sandals never wore out. Can you imagine that? My boys can't. They go through a pair of shoes in four or five months. For 40 years, their shoes never wore out. For 40 years, God gave them victory over their enemies. He even brought water from the rock and quenched the people's thirst. Now, in the days of Jesus, there was a particular miracle that was commemorated by a ritual that took place in the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles. It took place on the eighth day, the last day, the great day of the feast. On that day, the priest would march down. He'd lead a procession, and he would march down to the Pool of Siloam. There they would dip water, seven big jugs, and they would march back to the altar, and they would march around the altar seven times, a reminder of the seven times they marched around the city of Jericho before the walls fell down. And then they would pour out that water on the altar. And it was during this ritual... That Jesus stood up in the back of the temple and he made an astounding statement. Just as the priest was about to douse the altar with water, Jesus stood up and according to John chapter 7 verse 37, he shouted. It was the day God shouted. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus was saying to them in loud and clear fashion, that He alone is our rock in the wilderness that can satisfy and quench our spiritual thirst. That He alone can provide our needs. He alone is what we want and what we need. What a wonderful day that was. 
Now, here is where the plot thickens. If the spring feasts all spoke of Jesus' first coming, is it possible that the fall feasts speak of his second coming? Now, it's interesting that during the summer months, there were no feasts. And prophetically, that may be where we are right now. God is working primarily with the church today, not Israel. For the Hebrews, it's still summertime. But the scripture is clear that at the end of the age, God will return to Israel and he will accomplish his purposes through his nation. And how will God's end time work begin? With the sound of a trumpet, the Feast of Trumpets. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 tells us, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, the shofar. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The rapture of the church. God's prophetic plan for the end times begins with the rapture of the church. Remember, on the Feast of Trumpets, the priest blew the shofar to call the workers out of the field. The harvest was now over. That sounds like the rapture. God will blow the shofar and He'll call all of us who are harvesters in the field, out of the field, and we'll come to be with the Lord forever and to meet Him in a holy convocation corresponds with the Feast of Trumpets. Now remember, Jesus fulfilled Passover on the day of Passover. He became our first fruits, the first fruits of the resurrection on the Feast of First Fruits. Pentecost was also fulfilled on Pentecost, so could Jesus likewise fulfill the Feast of Trumpets on that exact day? This year, Rosh Hashanah occurs at sundown on October the 3rd. And though no man knows the day or the hour when the Lord will return and call up His church, as we approach Rosh Hashanah, I always get some eagerness. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies and he appeared to the people to let them know that their sacrifice had been accepted. And this is what will happen when Jesus returns to earth at His second coming, at the end of the Great Tribulation. The high priest, our heavenly high priest, will leave the Holy of Holies and he will show himself to the nation Israel. It could be that on that day, on the Day of Atonement, Jesus is going to return to this earth and destroy the Antichrist and set up his kingdom. And the Feast of Tabernacles, could it be prophetic of the kingdom age when God will again supply supernaturally for his people just as he did in the wilderness? The millennial kingdom will be a period of great rejoicing. In fact, Zechariah 14 verse 16 tells us that during Jesus' 1,000 year reign over all of the nations, the nations themselves will come up to Jerusalem once a year to worship their king throughout those 1,000 years. And guess what feast they'll keep? Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. Granted, it's speculation, but if the four spring feasts were prophetic of Jesus' first advent, it's possible that these three final feasts are prophetic of His second. The rapture could happen at the Feast of Trumpets. The second coming on the Day of Atonement. Of course, this is at least seven years away. 
and the kingdom age could commence with the Feast of Tabernacles. Interesting parallels. Well, there you have the Feast of Israel. Four spring, three fall, seven in all. God is not only the God over space and matter. He is also the God over time. Make sure that you put God at the head of your calendar and that you honor Him with your time.